everybody out there, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in on all the details of the galaxy far, far away, and we're, we're going to go through a lot of details yes, today. Yes, we are. Uh, my name is Mac, and I'm joined by my fellow timekeeper, Ross. Oh, Mac, I am so excited to be here. We are going to uh, have fun traveling through some time today as we talk about a door... To another universe, the world between worlds, the thing that connects all important events of time together. One of the most fascinating things that uh, Rebels introduced is with the cosmic force, there are ways to, well, the future is always in motion. And apparently when you go to certain doorways, the past is in motion as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, we teased it last week. This is going to be a long episode. We, we've pre-recorded some of this, so we know how long it's been here. So here in late in the very beginning of April, we're going to have a, a it's going to be a long one. Mm, That's all mm, I could say. Mm, mm. You've already probably seen the timestamp. It, it's going to be a long one. And we can't wait because we have a lot to say. Because we have a lot of ideas of what could the door between door do other than what it does on screen. What other choices could we fix in the Star Wars universe? And what would that change? And we're just going to start going through them. We but, speculate, speculate wildly. Oh, I know. It's like, it's what if, uh, you know, what are some of the ones we talked about? Well, we talked about, like, what if Shiva's loved as a child, which is just a silly thing, but, like, what if he didn't become a Sith Lord? On the same token, yeah. what if the hyperdrive was not hit yeah. when they were leaving Naboo and they just never meet Anakin? They just go to Coruscant like they were supposed to. Like, what if Alderaan had renewed their insurance policy for planetary destruction? And what if the Geonosians formed a union and they weren't able to build the ultimate weapon in the time frame that we saw in the original New Hope? We go through all this stuff and more. And you know what? Let's just get to it. We're already eating enough time, right? That's right. We have so much to say, so stick around right after this. So look, we have definitely talked around this character. Let's be honest, we've talked about this character. We've done everything, but we've never done a dedicated episode. Somehow, in the multi-episode run, the year or so we've been doing this, we have talked about the Terminatrix, T the TX series <laughs> Terminators, but somehow we did T-800, T-1, and never got to everyone's favorite four-digit serial number, the T-1000. I know. We somehow managed four episodes on the T-1. Uh, somehow. <laughs> well, the T-1... 
I did. It wasn't whole... just that. It was all the ones that came before the T eight hundred. I did a whole episode on how it looks like the it... thing from Lost in Space. It does... that was forty it... minutes. We stretched that into. Well, that's because it was really interesting. Because the best part of T, the best part of T three is the part where you're seeing how Judgment Day happens. I mean, that, that is, is, the is best true. Part. It is probably the best part. But <laughs> we're gonna talk about. Okay, so. It's the late 80s, you've seen Terminator, yep. and you've been terrified by the yep. T-800, right? Yep. The, the, this, this Austrian yes. skin job yep. endoskeleton. I'm so, scared of giant iguanas forever. So when they get to the sequel, they, they make one of the most brilliant decisions in it is, no, the T-800's the good guy. Like, you can root for him. It's like, oh, why? Well, because it's a mass production thing. <laughs> we make can... toys now. Well, I mean, you're. That's, that's probably very true, but partially. But it's it. also because I think that by the time, I mean, just think about what Arnold's career is between those two poles. Oh, yeah. Right. He's becoming a much more level character. He's going to go on to think. He's doing things like twins. He's going to be doing things like kindergarten cop. Like yeah. he's becoming a much he's more a friendly. Few years person. away from that true huge stardom. Family-friendly yeah. stardom, not action hero for an actor. I mean, and eventually he's going to do goofy stuff. Like, didn't he play Mr. Freeze in one of the Batman movies? <laughs> yeah, he sure did. Yeah, so Iconic. he's, he's going to get to a different place. So it also makes sense to sort of face turn him, make him a little more of a likable he- hero in this. And I mean, it, it, if your heart's not melting at the end of T2 when, when that T-800 <laughs> is going into a slag pit, you're just broken inside. There's so many moments in this film that are meant to be heart-wrenching, but most of them are not with our subject for Well, no, tonight. no, but what I was saying is <laughs> you, you're cuddling up. You're yeah. making the T-800 this kind of likable thing, which means you have to go so much harder on a much more merciless, much more terrifying, much more inhuman um, Terminator and, and it seems like an impossible task, doesn't it? Yeah. To make something scarier than, uh, you know, Metal Arnold. And I think what you have is you've got two things. You've got the idea that Skynet realizes that the best way to build these machines is, yeah, you know what? The, the skin job thing is good for infiltration, but what if we could infiltrate and also use that as weaponry and to get around obstacles and for problem solving? So, um, you know, you've got this this polymolecular substance that pours over his body, this skin of liquid metal that he's completely constructed yeah, out of. Mimetic polyalloy. Mimetic polyalloy. Mimetic there it poly-alloy is. Mimetic polyalloy as Arnold manages to get out. The polymetic polyalloy. Yeah, that was good. I liked that. Um, and his whole, and, and then they, they then the, the other thing they do is they really drain all the personality out of him because even the T-800 is very muted, right? Yeah. Still has hasta la vista. I'll be back. I need your boots and your motorcycle. Like this guy just murders people and just steals mm-hmm. their stuff. There's very little characterization to the T-1000. Well, that is such a big part of the movie too, because in Terminator one, you know, the T-800 has basically no personality. He is, he has humor, but that's because it's humor through brutality. Humor that, well, you know, is humor because it's fish out of water stuff that yeah, we, yeah, that we yeah. aren't, can't relate to. But what's so interesting about it is you have an actor like Robert Patrick, who is mm-hmm. such a great actor. 
actor. I love I mean, him to death. You know, in the next 10 years, he's going to do so many amazing roles. He's going to have fantastic parts on The Sopranos. And um, obviously, you know, throughout the early 2000s, he's continuing to, to be in Well, he's on stuff the X-Files and, and, mm-hmm. at, at kind of the end of that that run. Uh, very weird thing is I, I fell in love with Robert Patrick with playing The Dig when he just played a really lovable NASA commander in a video game. Like, he's he's it's funny because mm-hmm. he can Tombstone. show a lot of warmth. Mm-hmm. But this character is the opposite of that. <laughs> um, he's doing such a gob- good job of basically just being like just a vibrating like being of intensity. He's yeah. so intense. His stare will cut through you. And he's just so grimacing and grim all the time. Man on a mission. You know, Terminator is like that, uh, you know, he, he's the slow slasher. He's just kind of you know, walking after yeah. you. But when you get to the T-1000, he's, you know, running after you, coming That's, as fast as he you can. Know what? That's a good way to put it. Yeah, if the T-8000 is more like a Jason, like Voorhees kind of character, if he can walk as slow as he wants and he's still going to catch up to you. He's this being of inevitability. Yeah. The T-1000 is a much more frantic, like, I mean, just think of the scene where he's running behind the car and it's just yeah. like, oh, he's, he's coming after us. He's... Running. Can he run as fast as the it's car? Like 40 miles an hour right now. And then he's just turning his hands into the... Yeah. Okay, so wait. wait we're, we're getting, we're we're getting ahead. Good. Okay, so... Skynet sends back to intercept this T-800, um, the T-1000, to kill John Connor. Again, we're trying the same plot we had in the first yep. movie just a couple years later, yep. except at this time... John Connor has a chance to survive because he's got a, you know, the male figure he always needed in his life, a lifeless robot man. <laughs> um, well, his stepdad was not filling the void. No. Um, um, nor were his foster parents, who seem like pleasant enough people, but very not not keeping a good eye on him and not caring that they're not keeping a good eye on him. No, 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 no. They just want him to clean his room. They don't deserve what happens to them, but they also don't, you know, they're not. We're not losing much there. Listen, boys will be boys. I get it. He's had a rough life. But, you know, kid, you got to clean your room. You got to clean your room, kid. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. You got to clean your room. So we see the scene that we saw from, you know, Kyle Reese and we saw from uh, the T-800 in the first movie where this electrical orb starts forming and then we open the, I don't know, you can call it a time gate, like we open the phenomenon of the time travel concluding and there, you know, buck naked as usual as because time travel, you can't take stuff back with you because those are the rules we wrote for the movie franchise. <laughs> um, but this one is kind of showing off a little bit where they have the the burned out fence yeah. all around him to show a that serious this, practical this, effect for the time, too. Oh, yeah. So I have a friend who's in VFX. Uh, I've probably mentioned because he knows a lot more about this. He was telling me about some of the fun things about this particular scene. So you've got the perfect circle cut out of the fence, which really sells the fact that, like, this bubble came, right? Because you've never seen a fence like that. And the prop team had to work really hard on that. But the way that they did the glowing edges is pretty cool because the way they did that was... They went and got road paint. So the things that like reflectors and like the strips on like the lines on the road are made out of and painted the edges with that and then just carefully shown lights on that. And since they're this reflective paint, they beam it back a lot brighter than it actually is, which makes it look like it's embers and it's glowing. Very, very cool. The other fun fact about this is also, um, well, Robert Patrick was naked, as you would imagine, and apparently um, they didn't frame it 
quite perfectly. Um, and so as James Cameron says on the, uh, on the notes, uh, he had to pay for digital willy remo- removal because apparently you can see Pat Patrick's stuff. Uh, and so in the earliest days, they're probably going frame by frame in early Photoshop yeah. or photo or photo paint or one of those programs and digitally yep. blurring it out. Yep. And it's yep. just like wild to think about like, A, how trivial that would be today. I mean, so much of uh, Terminator 2 is the fact of like some of those effects hold up so well because even modern technology doesn't make them necessarily easier. Yep. Like, say, having a bean that's made out of magnetic polymers that's completely and totally reflective, like a mirror. Mm-hmm. That's still really hard to do now. <laughs> um, yeah, when they make T-1000s in modern time, they make them grayer, so it's easier. Well, and the thing about it was Stan Winston's shop was like the, the star of uh, Terminator because of how good the makeup and stuff was. And that continues in this movie, but the special effects around this goopy liquid person, um, you know, like an effect I think of that still holds up today that like there's not going to be a great way to do it any other way than the way they did it is like when he walks through the bars in the uh, oh, police yeah. station and his hand gets caught, but just like that, that not only is it such a terrifying moment, but it's so sold by the special effects and it's so mm-hmm. sold by the acting of the doctor there on the floor just watching mm-hmm. him walk through this door you know they understand just like when they were making jurassic park you know even though this was a few years before yeah. they understand that sometimes the reaction is just as important as the effect yeah and, yeah and, and this movie plays off of that so well with characters like sarah and with some of the other people in it who are not john who are not the terminator mm-hmm. um Oh, there, there's so much good stuff that makes this character scary. Yeah. Uh, and this is just part of it is his ability to be something we hadn't seen before up to this point. Yeah. Cause at one level, he's such a better infiltrator than the previous Terminator. And at another level, he's also so again, so much more inhuman. I mean, so we see that he goes around and he starts just like the Terminator did. He's like going in the phone book and finding the Connors, like finding the databases. Yeah. Um, he's I got don't... a picture as a cop. He's going around, well, you know, like And isn't that one of the, the great gross things about this is like the this first chance he gets, he takes over being a police officer yeah. and using that, yeah, um, which is clever showing he's probably smarter than the t-800 as far as like how to to go about this but it's also more terrifying because he's he's just um he has all the authority because he's wearing the clothes of our authority figures and you know it's also the early 90s with the lapd so we're not you know we're not looking very positively (laughs) at the uh policeman at that time or or now right now so um um but it, again, it's a perversion of, you know, of what's supposed to be right. And like you said, he's going around and like one of the things we see that's really, really fun is just showing how much, like you said, your reactions is the T-800 or how much he knows, no, that thing outclasses me, is when John calls his fa- his foster parents on the phone and tells them like, hey, you know, no, you got out of it. And then he just says, you your foster parents are dead. Oh, I love that. All right, so let's just talk very quickly about that scene because I love it so much. The T-1000 is, you know, uh, impersonating his uh, foster mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, his real foster mother already, obviously, is dead because we know that this machine has to touch them to be able to take their shape. So, you know, we can mm-hmm. infer that. 
And uh, there's this great scene where she's talking to John on the payphone. The dog is going crazy in the background. <laughs> you know, John goes, something's weird. She's being all nice and stuff. She's never like this. The dog's freaking out. And uh, Arnold takes over the phone, you know, mimics his voice, which I, I loved as a kid. Yep. I thought that was the coolest thing it in the world. It is really cool. And he goes, what's the dog's name? And I, I think he's like, Max, what's wrong with Wolfie? It's just like such a ridiculous, like, this Terminator doesn't know because it doesn't know that John isn't a dumb child. Like, well, you know, it's just, it's going along with what it thinks is its best possible well, outcome. And the other thing is you can tell that this T-800 has been reprogrammed by the human resistance because he has a little tiny bit more yeah. humanistic qualities. And obviously that's a big part of his story arc is becoming more human and, you know, him learning from the humans and that, you know, well, we're not here to talk about yeah, that yeah, and, no, no. And the beautiful nature of that. But um, what we are here to talk about is at, at this moment, you know, he's on the payphone. I love the moment where the Terminator just gets so annoyed, switches the phone to the other hand, and then shoves her just the finger mm. as a knife well, that's the through best part the is foster parent. The effortless just little ice pick his yeah. finger becomes and just extends through them It's so cold and calculating and brutal that that made it scary. Yes. You know, it's not... It's not the, you know, demonic metal skull image. It's the br cold brutality of it. Yeah. That was scary. And uh, yeah, that was, I mean, I was about seven when I first saw this movie. Wow. Um, I, I have great memories of seeing Terminator 2 with my grandmother. We watched uh, Terminator 2 and uh, I think RoboCop 2 that weekend was our... Uh, wow. Was our weekend. That's a double and, feature. Uh, and I think maybe Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I don't know what was with all the twos. But, uh, How did you sleep through the night? <laughs> you know, the only movies that ever scared me as a kid, two things. One, the opening when you have the metal skull with the flames. Sure. That image did haunt Stug. me as a child. And you know what movie also scared the crap out of me around the same time? Maybe I was about seven. Then I was probably about nine or ten when I saw this other movie. You know what movie scared the crap out of me? And still to this day is the most scared I ever remember being oh. during a movie. Okay, what? Do you remember the movie Joyride? With Paul Walker and Steve Zahn. Very it was, vaguely. It was, I think it was, might have even been a remake, but I don't, definitely never saw the original. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just a movie about basically these two guys messing over a CB radio with a long haul truck driver. And then he yeah. just becomes a psychotic person chasing them down. Yeah. And that movie, for whatever reason, I remember watching it at this same grandmother's house. Clearly she shouldn't have been letting me watch all these movies, but this is what we did together. Um, I, I, they had these big, like their whole living room was glass windows and they lived like up against the woods. Yeah. And so I would sleep on the couch in this living room with these big glass windows. So after watching these scary movies all night to like three in the morning, I would go to sleep on this couch and wake up with deer staring in at me and be terrified. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. But I'll, but I'll tell you what. I don't think watching uh, horror and scary and violent movies as a young kid made me any more violent. Well, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> so I, hey, I, well, and famously, right, we, we've talked about it many, many times here on uh, on Todd. We've talked about the fact that I did not get to see this movie. This and Jurassic Park were like yeah. the banned movies. Yeah. Except I got to see this before Jurassic Park. So the thing was, my parents were very strict on PG thirteen means thirteen. So you cannot watch this until you're 13. Yeah. For my 13th birthday, I got Jurassic Park. And I was so excited to finally know what my friends had known for years. I can't wait to watch this movie. And then it was a blanked tape. And I had to wait even longer to get it replaced. <laughs> um, 
But Terminator, I, I, I tried to sneak in earlier because it started playing on TV. Yeah. Of course, yeah. the first night I was like, oh, I'm so excited to watch this because I'd seen the TV at a Terminator way younger and thought yeah. that was the coolest movie ever. And yeah. like my childhood notebooks are full of people who are half robot because it was mostly that kind of concept of like, what if I'm like pick at my skin? What if I'm a robot underneath? Yeah. That'd be yeah, awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I remember it was the earliest days of viewer discretion is advised. And my parents <laughs> like, your viewer is not advised. You're not allowed. So like I saw it much later and, and famously my opinion of Terminator 2 is it's a fantastically great movie. I still like one better. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I'm not going to lie as we remember what we're here to talk about. Um, <laughs> the, the best, no wonder we never got to him. Cause we just, anything you talk about just pinballs you all over the place. Um, is this character because to me it was such a stirring imagery and how much they have fun like playing around with like m- the way he morphs and the the weapons and knives and stuff he builds out of his body and you know this informs characters that come later like um comic books I was reading with like Carnage the symbiote that fights Spider-Man who can also morph his body into mm. things um Clayface in the Batman franchise is you know the modern one is very this this liquidy person who can take any mm, shape good point um and of course I I also really like that in the end the kind of other terrifying about thing about T1000 is there's no person under there there's nothing recognizable as human. When it finally gets thrown in the slag at the end, it's just violently shifting into these ribbons of material because at the end of the day, it's goo. Yeah. It, it isn't a person at all. Yeah. There is no real human thing. This is a robot that was designed by robots. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes him really stick in the head of just such a much... The Resistance isn't capturing a T-1000 and reprogramming that. No, That's not happening. certainly, certainly not. <laughs> Um, and in fact, I did a little bit of a little bit of digging. I didn't read the whole thing, but apparently there's some more spelled out details in the Terminator 2 novelization oh. that talk about things like how far the you know pieces of metal can be from the Terminator and still try and find its way back to it. Ooh. And um, you know, the more metal he sheds, the weaker he gets. So that's why he's always trying to get pieces back when they fall off. Yeah, because it's affecting his mass. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. yeah, very very interesting stuff. But all all of those things were kind of questions you had because he seems so invincible. And yes. it isn't until the end of the movie, you know, the beginning of kind of the final action sequence when they freeze him and they sort of see a way they could potentially stop him by mm-hmm. changing his, for lack of a better term, body temperature. Yes. Yeah, by 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 messing with him, by, by freezing him, they can stop him. Mm-hmm. And then by burning him, they could destroy him. Yeah. So it's a very interesting concept to essentially affect the composition of the metal to -hmm. be the way to stop him, especially when the original Terminator, you know, the only way we knew to to be the Terminator was just so much physical force that it couldn't take it, you know, fire and bullets and explosions and crushing it. And we we blow a tanker trailer full of gas on it and he just gets walks right out of it. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we don't really know what's going to stop this because we haven't seen anything that can do long lasting damage. And so when we get to this final scene in the sort of, industrial steel mill or whatever it is um not only is it a great action sequence with lots of emotion with sarah being so hurt and with the terminator getting practically killed on multiple occasions and them being like literally on their last legs like they have no vehicle they have no way to escape you know sarah's hurt 
John's out of energy. The Terminator's half dead. Like, this fight in general, there's the moment where, you know, uh, Arnold is getting his head rammed with the steel beam. And I just remember thinking about not only how brutal it felt, but how much it felt like a, this is an action thing. Like, like. I am loving this because I'm seeing this science fictiony robot fight. Like mm-hmm. everything else about this I've enjoyed, but this is just robots hitting each other and I love that. Like I'm yeah. having such a great time with it. And it wasn't until after this that I saw the first Terminator and mm. honestly I it's so close for me but on any given day, but I probably would be um you know uh, leaning towards saying, you know, like you that I think the first Terminator is my uh, preferred film, mm-hmm. but that's just because I like the horror element of it, and I like oh. the sort of like, you know, yeah, I don't know the the setting a little bit, the '80s setting a little bit more. Well, it's kind of like we mentioned before, like another contemporary is Alien and Aliens. Yeah, very different it, movies, both very good. Both yeah, have their and, and this isn't as big of a gap between yeah. them, but yes, the first movie is much more of a horror movie, and the second movie is is arguably one of the defining action movies of the modern era, right? And while they still contain similar elements, because there is definitely action in the original Terminator and there's definitely horror in in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, the reality is these are two different flavors coming out of the same, like, you know, it's like they're both vanilla ice cream, but they've got different bits inside them and you might like one more than the other, but they're both pretty darn good. Yes, absolutely. Um, boy, we do have one other T-1000 to talk about briefly, but before we do, anything Mm -hmm. else you want to say about Robert Pattinson, or Robert Pattinson, Robert Pattinson? That would be, that would be, that's, That's there you go for the remake. That would be, yeah, that would be a different turn. A little bit alike, have similar hair. I, I I could, he could probably do it if he really wanted to. Oh, I believe he Um, could. Um, no, I, I think we, we've kind of uh, gushed a lot about it, but I think, again, I think the interesting thing is. I think it's been a really, really long time since we've had such a iconic being mm-hmm. digitally created for a movie. Like in the sense of like T one thousand is such a impactful. Like I could go to mention with the influences of like what would a liquidy person look like and what is it like to be able to shape your body into anything. Like that all is sort of codified here, um, and it's it's. It's one of the many things about T2 that has really, really stirred the imaginations of, I think I can safely say now, generations of people who have watched it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It it created a, well, how should I put this? It created a universe because, yes. you know, Terminator 1, while it was a fantastic movie, would these days have just been a cult classic probably. You know, who knows and if a one Arnold, and done. Yeah, who knows if Arnold would have even gone on to be as big as he was without Terminator 2. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, he was still on that trajectory, but who knows, right? But Terminator 2 created a universe. It created and is responsible for four more films, mm-hmm. two t- seasons of a TV show, comics, books, novels, all video kinds games, of things, video yeah. games, yeah. So, you know, Terminator 2 certainly has to be respected in that way. Um, I also think Terminator 2 is is worth pointing out just for the fact that, you know, obviously it wasn't every day that you had the same director doing the original and the sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, That's especially seven years apart, if my memory serves correctly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not lots of things about this movie are very, very interesting. It did. It spun lots of things on its head and it gave you. I mean, especially me as a young viewer, one of the first times I ever saw a quote unquote twist in a movie, mm. you know, like, oh my God, here he comes, here, here he comes, here he comes. Oh, 
wait, he he's helping him? He's well, the good guy? And what? I have to, Matt, what? say like, one of my favorite things is because you're like most of my friends at the time. T2, then Terminator. Yeah. I'm so blessed that I got to see Terminator and then it. So that scene hits me as hard as it's supposed to. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing is like, I thought he was the bad guy. I mm-hmm. knew him as the bad guy when I watched it for the first time. Right. You know, because he's the scary well, guy on the box. Like, I, he's, you and know. See, and even by my times, like, I knew the T-800 in Terminator 2 is helping out John. But, like, I thought they had to earn that. I thought John reprogrammed him or something. I didn't realize he was going to start that way. So when he shows up, I'm like, John's dead. How I don't know how he's going to, I don't know how he reprograms <laughs> this guy. How is he going to do that? And it's great that, like, you know. It plays up on that really, really well. Couldn't agree more. All right. So the only other time we see the T-1000 on film, briefly in Terminator Genesis, we do see a different version of the T-1000 mm-hmm. that comes back into the 80s and is uh, essentially melted with acid. They have, like, you know, acid that, uh, what is sulfuric acid or whatever. And, well, uh, it's, it's and, and chemically broken down. Yeah. They uh, So they do chemically the same burned. concept. But instead of using heat, they're using chemicals to affect the metal in a different way. And they also show that they can get its, um, they can uh, essentially, if you do enough damage, mm-hmm. it will fall. Yeah, you know, if you chip enough pieces off of it and it can't recover them, it will be destroyed, even well, if you don't destroy all be, of it. Because I think it's implied very much that like this is almost um, like a swarm of Uh processors inside that metal so the thing is the not only the less powerful yet the less responsive and intelligent it gets too because it has less networked processing happening Mm -hmm. it's probably more of a newer concept that we would apply to it now but like yeah it 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 makes sense again it makes sense that nothing is truly unkillable or unstoppable yeah just skynet works really hard to build the machines that are close that is the way of the future is it not yeah, and again, you see this concept also play out. I mean, TX has some of this because it has the liquid metal skin over the endoskeleton body. So you see a little bit of that playing out, out again, sort of the best of both worlds. But uh, as a T3 apologist, n- no one's going like, man, the Terminatrix, that's my favorite Terminator. That's not <laughs> happening. Even though she has cool plasma weapons inside her arms, that's pretty cool. The, the TX was a great, they interesting cheated. idea. They I, cheated time travel to bring future weapons to the past. Yeah. That should be her thing, and it's it's a minor thing. Maybe it's because when you have the T-1000 is such a freaking upgrade, you're like, that's only 200 down the series? Jeez, that's amazing. <laughs> and, like, TX, you're just like, so we just stop numbering them? Is there a marketing team in the future that Skynet works with? <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, not X. It actually stands for the number 10. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've won backwards. Um, the, <laughs> there, <laughs> oh boy, we could probably spend all day talking about different Terminator iterations. I would love to talk about We've the spent many days talking and, about well, it. Yeah, <laughs> I would love to talk about Dark Fate. But uh, since we don't have time to talk about more Terminators now, do you want to move on and talk a little bit about our next topic? Yeah, let's get to it. All right. So next up on Ty, we'll be talking about phone books. Should you be listed? Pros, cons? Eh, (laughs) And the dangers of being listed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So stick around right after this. Selected to 
to receive the sneak peek about a phenomenon called Pokemon, a hit TV show, a Game Boy game, and loads of other cool things that are about to take America by storm! Gotta catch them all! Gotta catch them all! A sneak peek at Pokemon. Pokemon, the journey's just begun. Pokemon, more the better. Pokemon, Team Rocket's on the run. Pokemon, we're friends forever. You've got the power right in your hand. They'll evolve before your All right, so we decided that for this episode, we are going to go back in the time, the mists of time, and talk about some of our earliest experiences with, of course, our favorite franchise of all time, Pokemon. Mac, we have been doing this Pokemon podcast for five long years now. Mm -hmm. We have had lots of topics. We have discussed everything from... The Squirtle Squad, to different generations of games, to different uh, pieces of merchandise over the years, to some of our favorite Pokemon. And today, we decided that, you know, for the history, the anniversary of our show, the 25th anniversary of Pokemon, Mm -hmm. we decided to go back in time and discuss a little bit our Pokemon origin story, something we've never really talked about on the show. So I'll go first. Yeah. One day I was 10 years old and this professor wanted me to get out of town for a while so he could, uh, you know, make nice with my mother. And uh, I, I he gave you're... me this uh, this Pokeball and said, hey, see that big gold bird in the sky, kid? Go catch them all until you find that thing. Okay, professor. <laughs> and then I did. And uh, then I became a champion and it was great. And when I returned home, uh, the professor and my mom had moved to Florida. And uh, yeah, it was not great. Yeah, um, and uh, my house was closed, and I couldn't get back into it, but there was a, a whole held letter at the post office that said that I could get on the SSN and go to other places, so I did. So I did, and it was great. Like every responsible 11-year-old does. <laughs> yeah, me and my rival, we're just, uh, it's all we need. Okay, so we are going to discuss, as we said, our history with Pokemon, and uh, Mac, would you like me to go first, or would you like to go first? Well, I, let me, I, I think... As the older ombudsman yeah. here, I think I'll start because right, my my love of Pokemon exists before Pokemon. Okay, so tell us about it. Um, so I liked RPGs at a young age because uh, my brother, who owned the NES, got like the Final Fantasy, like mm-hmm. the first Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I got really into that, um, especially because I was sort of like the the helper. Like, I wasn't allowed to touch the control because older brother said no. Um, so I'd be the one, like, looking for the guides and, like, figuring all this stuff out. So I, like, really knew that game. So always liked uh, role-playing games. Um, so it's, like, 1998, like, early spring. And uh, I get my, my issue of Nintendo Power in the mail. But it's a special one. It came in a manila envelope, like the packet, like the <gasps> phone ones. Because inside of it, was a big old chunk of plastic. Nice. So, before YouTube, we had a thing called VHS, which stood for VHS. Oh, so you pulled that out of, out of the air. Yeah, what did it stand Actually, for? I think it's video head system is actually what that is yeah, for. Is It's a particular type of spooling, because I used v, their, their real names, film school, 
uh, is a VTR, which is a videotape recorder. Um, but anyway, um, so VHS, so put it in there. Um, and there's this like 15 minute presentation of like, get ready. It's coming. The biggest craze in all of Japan is coming to your home town. I'm like, I should get ready. I need to be prepared. <laughs> um, and it is, it is, you know what? It's really weird. I, hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to do something unprecedented. I'm going to stop the podcast for a second. And I need to show you at least a little bit of this. Isn't that wild? I had certainly never seen this before. So i just show you a few premium cuts. Um, I won't say it's on the internet. It's mostly on the internet. The one we watched had like, like, it's so amazing when they fight the Pokemon. Ash goes after a Pidgeotto in scene missing <laughs> and then came back. So the whole thing about it is it's this weird thing where they're showing you clips from the anime mm -hmm. and there's this like kind of frame story of an almost weird throwback 1950s mom, which was a thing we did in the 90s as baby movers got the fifties all over everything in the nineties. Um, and she's just basically going like, well, kids, it's coming to a town near you. It's Ash Ketchum and his friends. And they're collecting all these little Pokemons, which stands for pocket monsters. There's 150 of them. Maybe even more. Um, and it's just this whole thing where, to be honest, it's the press kit turned into like mm -hmm. this kids soluble version uh they have some kids going like me and my brother have been playing pokemon which is probably impossible because it's not actually released but what if it was troy um, and terry um <laughs> and it, it, i could i might have the dates wrong but i want to say i got that in like april or may of 98 and i think it was like september like right before school really got going is when red and blue came out in the states mm -hmm. so when red and blue came out of the states i was stoked I was ready. So the marketing I worked. Was primed. Yeah. Well, we didn't have these terms when I was a kid, but I was activated. And since I already liked Nintendo as a subscriber to Nintendo Power, they realized I could be an influencer. What they didn't realize is probably like a year or two older outside of the exact demographic they really wanted. Because um, I wasn't too old for Pokemon, but like yeah. I got super into the game. Um, and I very much remember I got... Well, 98, um, how old would you have been in 98? Uh, 13. Okay. Pretty solid age um, for a game like that. So, um, especially then. So, um, so yeah. So like I, like I said, I was like 10 year old was the zero G like that is exactly mm -hmm. what they wanted. They would go probably as low as eight year olds and they probably go as high as 12 as far as mm -hmm. the big red circle around who they want. So I was a little bit older than that. So I got super into the game. I got red. And I remember it also came with, like, the thickest um, manual I had seen in a long time, which was nice because it was all cut as, like, a trainer's journal. Hmm, I don't remember what the manual looked like very much in this. It was really thick. It, it reminded me of, like, so the, famously when Nintendo brought Earthbound over, mm -hmm. it came with a strategy guide. Like, hmm. a full beat-the-game strategy guide. Because basically, RPGs have always had a rocky kind of thing in... Um, getting into the United States uh, throughout all of the 80s and 90s. Um, and it wasn't until, like, Final Fantasy VII sort of kind of broke the mold on that. And Pokemon's only, like, a year after that came out. And then it 
you know, and then RPGs have always actually been niche, especially turn-based ones, mm. until Pokemon. Pokemon is by far the most famous and biggest and, you know, the the hugest thing. So I got super into the games. I remember, like, going to scout meetings and school and trading with people and doing all that stuff. But, like, I didn't really get into the card game is, like, a good example of, like, I was maybe just a little bit out of mm-hmm. spec. Mm-hmm. Um like tons of my friends, especially in scouts where I interacted with a lot of older and younger kids than mm-hmm. me. Uh, they were all the way down. I'm going like, that's neat. But if you played magic, the gathering, which was a really good game, just saying that Tempest set just came out. I'm pretty into it. Yeah. A Actually, lot of the older hold. kids. Now I was a little bit younger, but a lot of the older kids were more into the magic. Yeah. Uh, the Pokemon was definitely more younger uh, leaning. Yeah, and, and, you know, so Super got into the games, uh, which is not surprising because that's the place you could really get into it. And I remember running through it, beating it. Um, remember, I've talked uh, I've talked about this trauma before. When we did the biography of Mewtwo, I remember opening a vein about this. But it wasn't until my adult life I ever caught Mewtwo because I used my freaking Master Ball on the dumb Articuno. Oh, no. Because I didn't realize that, like, oh, you can just capture that, like, normals. I feel like I probably did use my Master Ball not on Mewtwo as well originally. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the right answer. Yeah. The Mewtwo should be captured with the Master Ball. But like, I mean, it's only right. I beat that. I played a bunch of silver, um, but I remember that, like, I traded myself over a lot because I had my brother's Game Boy. Like, I traded over, like, my Mewtwo, and sure, it only listened to every, like, one out of ten commands, but, like, you could still really ruin the game by doing that. <laughs> so I remember Silver just kind of fuzzed out, but like, you know, I still love that stuff. But it was it was really cool being like, hey guys, you into this Pokemon? I already know about that. See that guy? He's a Pikachu. They're going to make a, a Volkswagen bug into a Pikachu. Because that's in the video too, is they told you there's going to be a US tour and we got a bug that looks like a Pikachu. I and I'm like, that. I just know what a Pikachu is as of right now. And even I know that's awesome. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you were primed and ready to go. Oh, and last but not least, the syndication of the Pokemon show, which, again, may not have been exactly the target demographic, but it was on right before. I would watch like that and Gargoyles every day before school. I feel like, oh, before school. Before school. I I remember after school. I feel like it was four o'clock was Pokemon. Well, WB, which I remember was huge, that totally changed their format of WB Kids when Pokemon dropped. Okay. um, but I think the first season or two were just in general syndication. Yeah. And that's why they were they were on early in the morning. So I watched like a lot of that. That was And then the, he goes yeah. to Johto and I have no idea what happens after mm-hmm. that. I I've maybe watched four episodes of the anime yeah. since then. So your experience originally with Pokemon pretty much ended after Gen Two and then you came back to it later on. Yeah, I poked around. I mean, I bought all of them. I mean, God, I mean, being adult, like I remember buying Sapphire with job money because I had job money by that point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I never really got as hard into it as like X and Y is basically when I got really into mm-hmm. it, when you and I started playing Leaf Green and Fire Red together. And yeah. then that led to Pokemon Go. And yeah. then that's why we have a podcast for Here the last five are. years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, well, I love it. Uh, I guess I'll dive in now, huh? Mm -hmm. So in 98, I would have been seven, so a few years younger than you. Okay. Uh, So definitely at the low end of the target demo (laughs) for Pokemon. As they look at the scope and they say, he's a little bit young, but 
We'll have him for life. You then, sure <laughs> they did, surely enough. Um, so I was seven years old, and I remember a few things. I remember that as the buzz was building up, I remember hearing people talking about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember seeing things in the toy store, and I know, I remember people, you know, having the cards. That was the first thing that I really remember seeing and getting my hands on. And, you know, the, the, the classmates at school having their, you know, their rubber band wrapped around a, a stack of Pokemon cards and thinking they were the coolest thing in the world, you know? I probably would have been... I would have been old enough to read, but boy, I really don't feel so. I'm wondering, and I and obviously I was a small child. I actually thinking about it, am thinking that maybe it was the like the next like spring. So like if if mm. Pokemon came out that September in the U.S., it might have been like that March or April. That I because I feel like it wasn't I would have been in first grade and I feel like that's not the case I feel like it would have been a little bit later on when I was maybe in second grade mm-hmm. um, but anyway I remember when they were out and um, at the time only base set was out from what I remember I don't remember mm. seeing anything else and um, I begged my parents I said hey can we get some Pokemon cards all the kids at school have them they seem so cool can we please get some Pokemon cards and apparently my parents had heard of them and like we're trying to find some for me you know being <laughs> there was good- a small neighbor boy who was talking about this tape that they had <laughs> and they were explaining that yeah. they are it's a portmanteau of pocket monster <laughs> well yeah my parents would quickly soon learn that they would be uh very worn out from all i would come to learn about pokemon um but anyway <laughs> so um i remember they'd be on like okay well we'll go and we'll drive and we'll find you some pokemon cards we know a place you know not far away that's selling them and We got in the car, it was a rainy night, I remember it, and we went to this little card store, and I remember they had like a neon sign that said open in the window, and I remember that, you know, in the the window there was a banner that said Pokemon sold here, and I was so excited, and we went in there, and they had starter decks. Uh, and from what I remember, they were $30 at the time. They were, like, marked up insanely high for that, where they were supposed to be. I was going to say, I think at that time, like, yeah, a starter deck you usually be around be, like, 20 bucks, but you were seeing... You were seeing the craze really go. And it was. It was already full swing at that point. So I was, you know, I remember I got, it was called the Overgrowth Starter Deck. And I remember they had mm. three or four of them, you know, they laid them out. And uh, I remember I picked this one because it had Gyarados on the front. And I thought that was the coolest. And also it was blue and green. It looked cool. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember these these starter decks, so Mac. But I, they I were bought probably, that original run. Yeah, we, we've touched on this a few times when we got through the card game. But like, mm-hmm. I... I got some cards, but in the end, I just sort of collected them for the pictures a little bit because the game is good, but the game was like, well, I've said it many, many times when playing the game. All right, and I'm ready for my next turn. I'm going to, Mac, I just defeated six of your monsters. Right, and the game ends there. See, I'm a green player over in Magic, so I'm used to six. I've got to kill 60 monsters before I'm done with today's game. Like, ugh. Anyway. Um, so I had some, and then the one thing I remember very specifically, you probably remember this too, is like, and it was a real weird mix. They would have these really soft airbrushed imagery in there, and they would also have like the hardest CGI can't do this, but we're doing it anyway, CGI pictures. Like it was all over the place as far as like the art they picked and pulled from. The art for the first few years in the Pokemon game in general was, um, 
was, I think, a little bit more unique. You know, as we yeah. go on, obviously, we've seen <laughs> so many iterations of almost pretty much every Pokemon besides Kadabra, legally, uh, in the trading <laughs> card game. Um, but, you know, they've all had so many different versions of artwork over the years. But there is something, one, nostalgia, of course, about those first couple of years. But also just the sort of simplicity of a lot of the images. A lot of them are just against colored backgrounds. Or, like, when I think about, mm. like, the, the foil cards, you know, the holographic cards... They'd be against like, you know, just a just a striped background or a patterned background, you know, not an actual scene or, a, right. you know, an actual, um, uh, you know, an actual a simpler time. Yeah. Yeah. They were a little they were a little bit scaled back. Um, but at the same time, they were um, incredibly in demand. I remember every recess, you know, kids were sharing their cars. We were too little to know how to actually play the game. So we were just kind of being like, well, I'll trade you this one for this one, not knowing anything about it. And, you know, I remember sitting on the steps and like sending one of my friends to go, hey, go go remind that group of kids that I have this Gyarados I could trade so I can get them all over here <laughs> looking at my cards, you know, being a little, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> a little more way to put it. Um, so that was my very first memory of Pokemon. And then my very first console ever was a Game Boy Pocket. Okay. But my first game was not Pokemon. So I wish for the life of me I could remember exactly when I got Pokemon Blue. That was my first game. Mm. I feel like it was for a birthday. Um, so it might have been like January of 99. Oh, yeah, okay. Like that, that would make a lot of sense in the timeline for me. But I don't remember exactly. I know I got Blue. I know I played it on my green Game Boy Pocket. And I know that pretty much once I got it, it was the only Game Boy game I played besides Mario. It was pretty much the only yeah. thing that made it into my Game Boy. My friends were obsessed. We were always using our yeah. link cables to trade. We were battling every chance we got. You know, it was playing it in school <laughs> any chance you got. Like, that was all we did was was play Pokemon. And I, and I was one of the only people who had Pokemon Blue, from what I remember. In my Blue friend group, rare so it didn't have a dragon on. Well, it. exactly. So you know, for trading purposes, that there, there were lots of reasons why that was good for me. Um, so that was my initial experience with the card game, and I continued to buy cards. Me and my my close group of friends, you know, through the jungle set and the fossil set. Um, that was really where the bulk of my time was spent. And then after that, there was like gym heroes and a few others but basically i continued to play the card game through the first couple neo genesis sets where um we were getting into the johto generation basically yeah. getting into gen 2 so i made a few sets into that i remember being really excited getting my umbreon card and you know all of that uh, i think dark charizard was out by that you know there were some really cool cards that we had seen like pictures of the japanese versions and now at this point we're five six sets deep deep in america and they're out here and they're really cool and so i remember all of that um and so as far as the games go like i said pokemon blue lots of experiences you know um my favorite part of pokemon was definitely um you know just going through the elite four over and over again oh okay that was the you know just grinding just trying to make you can i get my whole team to level 100 you know can i beat them without dying can i beat them without using a revive you know that was kind of like how i spent my time in the end game in Pokemon Blue. And then I remember when Pokemon Gold came out, it didn't take long after that, I don't think, for me to get my Game Boy Color. Ah. And once that happened, that's yeah. what I was really... So as much as I love Pokemon Blue and as much as I went into it, 
I would say my fandom didn't really take off fully until Pokemon Gold came out. That was the big one for me. Gold I can see how that was, was it, it still is to this day my favorite generation, my favorite game overall. Well, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia there. There's a lot of benefit to essentially having two games built into one. Um, you know, there's a lot uh, about that generation of Pokemon that I that I really particularly like the design oh, yeah. of. Well, I... You know, I think the thing that's great, so uh, it, it, the game came out in 96 in Japan, mm-hmm. and they'd already had the two-year craze before we got it. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, like, the year 2000 is like this, 2000 to 2001 is like this just giant period of Pokemon, um, because you had the new games, which we only had to wait two years. They had to wait, f- like, four. Um, you had the simplicity of... Yeah, there's like another hundred and fifty of them. Like you're not completely crazy. You like kids can still memorize this new batch. It's mm-hmm. not like now where like you gotta be like us into this to try and start naming all seven hundred. We're something. just shy of a thousand now yeah. as we're heading towards uh yeah. um the next gen. Yeah, you know Gen two was what? It was like a hundred. I think it was a hundred even. Uh I wanna say. I wanna say it was a hundred. Was I it might I think I feel like. See now, why don't <sighs> you would think we would look these thing, these exact? No, it's up. not that. It's just why can't I think of Pokemon's national dex numbers? Ugh. Anyway, yeah. the point is added. Yeah. We added a modest but large amount. Yeah. Right. And by that point, the machine had completely gone. You could get all kinds of plushes and sticker books and. All oh, that kind the of stuff. pencil toppers and the notebooks and the backpacks and the lunch boxes and anything you could imagine. A big thing for me were just the little the little plastic vinyl figures, you know, yeah. just that came in little plastic pokeballs that'd be in like I think packs of two or three, and yeah. they were just, just small. And man, I love those. Uh, that is arguably one of the reasons Cubone remains like my, my favorite Pokemon is because I just happened to end up getting one of those, yeah. and I'm like. Look at this little poor York guy. He's great. Yeah. That um, you know what? It's funny you say that. I have the same experience, but with Mew. Oh, Mew's good stuff. I remember the Mew? Its tail popped out, and I thought I broke it. But and then you realized it's a god, and you can't break it. <laughs> yeah, that's um, exactly right. But like you also had in like 2000, 2001, you had the the Tamagotchi came came out. You had like the Pikachu yeah. Tamagotchi. Then the more advanced one came out after that. Yeah. That's also when the very no one remembers it, but I collected it, which was um, Pokemon Mini, the little micro console they had. Mm, I don't, like, yeah, that's I don't all 2000. That. Um, it's just, it's not so much the Pokemon was firing on all cylinders, but it was the, oh, oh, we're going to be able to make money on Pokemon forever. This wasn't a fad. Well, I remember every, at least I assume it was the same for you. I know you're a little older. Remember every parent telling you this was a fad? Yes. That this would not be popular, you know, that you will not be into this when you're older. You'll remember when you were crazy with these dumb cards. And yeah, and your kids will like stupid things too. It's not like when you're an adult, you can sell that one Charizard you have for enough to retire on. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Yeah. Why don't kids play with the stuff we did? Real toys like yo-yos and slinkies. None of this foreign stuff. American well, made. You know I mean, what? I, like I was old enough to remember very, very lightly. Uh, there was, I don't know. I, in my circle, I never heard anyone actually being straight up xenophobic about it. But there was definitely a kind of like, can't you be into something American? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I and know, the I, funny thing about it is like, when you look at like anime culture today, it's like, they... The Pokemon company to this day does a lot of work to translate Pokemon, right? 
you're you're not gonna be other than Pikachu, and that maybe that's where all that anxiety came from. Like other than Pikachu, all the other names are normal American, you know, word play. Like pseudo wudo is not pseudo wudo in Japanese, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, and that that continues to today. But like, yeah, it's weird to think of that xenophobia because. I mean, we're like that scene from, is that, oh, I'm not familiar enough Back to the Future. The, the one Back to the Future, he's, he, he's like, oh, this is bad because it's from Japan. What are you talking about, Doc? All the best stuff comes from Japan. <laughs> like, that's kind of where we are now. Like, the idea of someone being like, oh, I'm wary of this Japanese stuff. I'm like, how old are you, you fossil? Like, yeah. Japan's great. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't remember a whole lot of that, but I definitely remember just kind of like, I think, you know, the biggest thing is, I think for, like, my parents' generation and probably lighter to your parents' generation, like, they're never going to understand this. They're, it's, this is impenetrable for them. And there will be plenty of things with our kids we won't understand. So, so wait, so you throw the baseball, Pokeball! Yes, you throw the baseball at the, and then they dogfight? Yeah, we have a Pokemon battle until they faint. (laughs) Yeah, faint. Okay, um... (laughs) I still remember sitting on my mother's bed, going a mile a minute trying to explain this card game, (laughs) and, uh, her just, like, And there's prizes, and we have to attach energy, but sometimes you attach double energy, and then... (laughs) Her being like, I just don't care, Ross. And then they Uh, do a tail whip. Do you know what a tail whip is? I'll explain it, don't worry. (laughs) Um, So I remember that. I have a very distinctive experience of going to my first Pokemon card tournament. I Mm. mean, I couldn't have been more than eight or nine, you know, just old enough to read the cards competently. Um, Mm -hmm. And I read the instruction books. I had never played the game before. Like, I'd collected the cards, but now I'm going to learn how to play. Again, more collecting for the pictures. I think everyone starts card games that way. (laughs) Uh, And so anyway, so like, okay, I'm going to learn how to play. So I make a deck. I feel like this deck is great. I take it to my local comic book shop. And uh, apparently I skipped over the rule book, uh, the part that said you needed energy to attack. Apparently, I just didn't know that. Yeah, apparently wasn't smart enough to figure that part out as an eight or nine year old or whatever. So I got there with this deck and I'm very confident, put out my whatever, my Hitmonchan or whatever, call out my attack for my opponent. Tell me, uh, you don't have any energy on there to do that. It's really weird that Magic the Gathering and Pokemon are probably still the most going card games in the world. When both of them have the same Achilles heel, super prominent flaw that almost every game after a certain, like after the year 2000, every game that came out fixed that, which is like, so I think there's a game called Duel Masters that was basically Magic the Gathering via like Pokemon. It was more like, mm-hmm. instead of, oh, this is a 2-2 flyer. It's like, no, this is a 2000-2000. And weirdly enough, we never put anything in the last two digits of the numbers. So it could we could just drop those. But it sounds cooler when you say 2000 but the biggest thing is all those cards, you could either play as what the card is or you could play it as a power source. So imagine like you have a Pikachu in your hand and you're like, I'm not going to use this Pikachu. We're later in the game. I don't want this starter one. You could just play that as electric energy would be the idea. Yeah. And it's like, it's a weird that they've never gone back and tried to just say that's the way it works now because it makes a billion times more sense. And mm-hmm. I think every kid like played Pokemon just going like this. And of course, like, yeah, the kid who's got the Mewtwo and the Gyarados and like the Dragonire. Yeah, of course they're going to win because if you don't have to pay anything for this, their powers are always better <laughs> than yours. <laughs> yeah. What you didn't know. And it's so funny now to watch videos of like deck building strategy from the original meta. 
oh, and yeah. like see what the what actually playing the game then was like. Yeah, it's just like. So is any of the cool cards? No, my entire deck's based on uh, Volt Orbs and Eevees. Oh. Well, Eevees are cool. No, but just Eevee. I never evolved them. <laughs> I seem to remember Electabuzz being a big one, but it's Oh, been so I could long. see that. Um, anyway, so that was my experience with the card game. I basically fell off around the Neo set, you know, Gen 2. Um, as far as the video games go, same thing. You know, I got blue and then yellow and then gold and then crystal. Oh. And that was Ooh. kind of the, the end of it for me. You know, they were always Christmas gifts. It yeah. was always the, well, we don't know what to get them. So they put out a new Pokemon game and we don't know that it's the same thing. See, so this is the problem with being an adult is like you have disposable income. So you go yeah. and buy the new Pokemon game and I... I didn't have a job, but, like, I bought silver with my own money. Yeah. I didn't have to wait for an event. I could just go right in yeah. whatever it was. The, I think it was either September or October for that as well. Yeah. I just went and bought that, which is great. Yeah. I mean, I had to get a ride there, but I could just yeah. go buy it. I'm pretty sure I got it that Christmas. Which means we, yeah. I never, until collector years, would own a copy of yellow or crystal mm -hmm. or emerald because i didn't have the patience to wait for the roll-up one mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i can go buy that now how See, can i not go buy I know. that now? i i got them and then bear i played yellow a good bit but i don't know if i ever booted up crystal much uh but then that was it you know i um i moved on to in the card game world i started playing Yu-Gi-Oh, and in the mm. video game world i i um you know I, I still had my game boy color and then eventually got a game boy advance but when the Game Boy Advance came out, I, I never played any more Pokemon. I think the only game uh -huh. I really got into uh, that was sort of similar in the same vein was Golden Sun on the Game Boy Advance. Oh, you yeah. Know? That's an RPG. Uh, yeah. As far as RPGs go. Yeah, and I played a little bit of that. But beyond that, by that point in uh, in the Game Boy, I was, I was playing a lot of older games. You know, I was playing a lot of... Um, you know, I still play Mario 2, Six Golden Coins, and... Yeah. You know, like a lot of those same games, I would still play Pokemon sometimes, but wasn't buying a new one and then um beyond that i uh, i definitely remember one of my best pokemon memories for sure early on was going to see the original movie my dad uh, uh let me skip school that day i remember waiting in line outside of our local uh you know what theater i know what uh, yeah. you know what theater only theater around then not there and anymore. uh and uh <laughs> it's there in a different way uh, it's bones are there. Yeah. No, you worked there. I'm not talking about that one. Oh, not that one. I'm oh. talking about the one you worked at. Oh, again. It's, it's, it's bones been, repos it's been <laughs> yeah. repossessed. It's, yeah, it's a different animal. Uh, but anyway. It's a much nicer, cleaner oh, place. So for, for sure. <laughs> anyway, that's for some uh, Yeah. So I remember standing in line. <laughs> I remember standing in line outside and um, we got interviewed by the news. And meanwhile, Ooh. I was scared to death because I had skipped school for this. My dad had let me skip school. And we were there with other, like, I remember seeing other people there who had skipped school. There was a huge line out front. I remember getting the Mew promotional card, you know, the, the hieroglyphic one. Uh, and yep. having a great time. I, I mean, I have nothing but fond memories of that experience. Um, my parents also, around that same time, when it would have only been base set out, took me to a mall in Ohio for, like, an event. You know, it was like a trading card tournament, I'm pretty sure. Even though I wasn't, you know, playing. I was just yeah. there to... Uh, Check know. out the scene. Yeah, yeah. I remember I bought a bunch of packs and I pulled a Charizard that day, um, which was awesome. You know, my first one. Um, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. A lot of good memories tied to consumerism. It's kind of funny how that works. Yeah. Um, and well, then, you know, when it, when it comes to Pokemon, that was sort of... You know, I watched the anime for a while, uh, you know, for those first couple years. Um, but then, like I said, it all switched over to Yu-Gi-Oh! And then it didn't take long after that for Dragon Ball 
to kind of take oh, over sure. my life. And that was sort of it. You know, Dragon Ball and Star Wars yeah. pretty much carried me into my teenage years. And then, um, you know, I never really fell off of Star Wars. But beyond that, it was, yeah. you know, Pokemon didn't, I didn't get back into it until X and Y. X yeah. and Y was what just, brought me back in. I got a 2DS and I got X. I say where we worked, like everybody, everybody got into X and Y. Yeah. And it was, it was really awesome for like two weeks of just everyone going like, we all grew up on this. Isn't that great? Like yeah. I specifically remember one of like the greatest achievements of all social media to me is I just started a Twitter thread that said, prepare for trouble. And then just everyone else in my Twitter sphere helped add to the thread until we said the entire thing. And it made me so happy. It was such a stupid little thing, but it made me so happy. And Either. then, and then like I said, then, then like go galvanized my adult love for Pokemon I mean, I, I kept buying, I bought the games all through the entire run. I yeah. don't think, I think Diamond, I beat all the way. I don't know if I beat anything else in the interim. Because mm-hmm. I was just, I was kind of like mm-hmm. dabbling in them. Mm-hmm. Um, Testing them out. Well, and the other thing with Pokemon is it's one of those things of like invest early because they're always going to get more expensive. Always. Um, which is weird. Because um, like, I, I think I bought black and white. I bought white and then black too. I bought like. Not that, like, maybe six months after it released, and it already, the used copies were, like, $2 less than the new copies. Mm-hmm. Um, but you did, you were saying about going to the movies, so, like, I don't think I saw Pokemon the first movie until, like, 15 years ago. Like, <laughs> like I did not, I did not go to the movies for that. But I'm also thinking about, like, because I'm thinking, like, I'm not going to go see that kitty movie, and I'm laughing at myself because I'm like, but I specifically remember being in a music store, like, an FYE or something and like going up to my parents cheapest like, Oh yeah, no, I found something. If you want to buy it for me. And my parents like, sure, go to the counter and gave me money. And I'm like, normally good thing this time, bad thing. Cause I did not want to have to explain to the cute lady clerk that uh-huh. it's cool that I'm buying Pokemon to be a master. It's a, it's okay. I'm mature. <laughs> Uh, also, still like that album. Every once in a while, I'll listen to it because it's just got catchy, dumb musical versions of like Pokemon nonsense. Yep, yep. Um, oh, classic. And it wasn't until this podcast I realized there was a sequel to it, which is ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, good memories. Good memories. This wild journey we've gone on to get to here. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? We have obviously spent a good chunk of our life um you know, we've come back to it and, and flown away from it at different times throughout. But, uh, you know, it's something that I kind of suspect will be around forever now. It'll be part of our lives for a very long time, I think. Part of our children's lives. I don't think it's going anywhere. I, I think it will be one of those things that lasts. And, you know, as we well, get it- farther into the Internet age, less and less properties have the same last you know they stick around but they don't have the same longevity i think the advantage is because every like three or four years they reinvent the entire wheel which is good you know the same basic mechanics get in but you get new replace there's always a new rat-a-tat being made every generation some Mm -hmm. some pidgey that's just here to die like (laughs) everyone has one um but i think the other thing about it is it's I think it's done something that so few tran- franchises don't do is despite my opinions, but Arceus um, it almost always focuses on the eight to 10 year old. 
And because they're always focused like a laser onto that, it means the franchise is never expected to grow up with you. Like we just said, like, oh, yeah, after Johto, I sort of fell off, right? I think that's true of probably everybody on their Pokemon journey is that there's a certain window of the franchise you just weren't part of until, to be honest, you got over maturity issues and said, yeah, I am an adult. Pocket monsters are still pretty cool, right? Like, because then that's what it always is. Is like, I was playing cooler stuff while uh, those Pokemon games were still going on. Like, there's this, like, stigma of, like, ah, oh, that's a kiddie thing. And then when you get to be an adult, like, nah, this is pretty great. Um, you know, I mean, Joy was watching a child and myself enjoying, in almost the same way, Detective Pikachu in a theater. Oh we're getting God, different yeah. things out of it, but we're also getting the same thing out of it. Like, because it's yeah. it's cross-generational, and I think they just do a really, really good job of constantly investing in the kids. So it's kind of like how Power Rangers is also evergreen, is, you know, uh, me and a kid will have a love of Power Rangers of Pokemon, but it's not the exact same overlapping thing. I'm going to talk about my favorite one's Cubone. And I'm sure probably zero kids running around, unless they're really gothy, are saying that Cubone's their favorite out of the almost thousand Pokemon. Yeah. That's the one that they want. They're they're saying like, like no, if I'm going to be contrarian, I'm going to go with Grubbish. And I'm like, that's a good choice. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. And at the moment where we stand, it is the most successful IP... <laughs> in the world yeah. and in the history of the world. Um, you know, more people on this planet know what a Pikachu is than almost any other fictional character on earth. And that's wild. Yeah, it is wild, isn't it? And it's nice to see something that we were there for the beginning of mm -hmm. last so long, right? Yeah. And it's and again, it's also it's it's also a franchise that has a very bright future. You know, we're going towards uh, Scarlet and Violet. It's going to be very really awesome. Which actually reminds me, we should probably move on because we have a second topic where we need to talk about what the EV structures are going to be in Scarlet and Violet. Because I'm very curious to see how the competitive scene is going to change in the next generation, uh, especially with yeah. all the question marks about what the battle system is going to be. I think there's a lot to talk about. All right, so stick around, and on the next segment of Pi, we will talk all about the upcoming generation of Pokemon games and what we expect from them right after this. I think this one's a little overdue, don't you? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> we've talked about, uh, you know, Arnold as Mr. Freeze. We've talked about Mr. Freeze in the comic books. Now it is time to talk about maybe the most, I don't know, is it fair to say the most famous version of the character? 
Well, maybe from we, our generation. At we least. especially discussed this when we were talking about the comics, but when Mister Zero he originally appeared, like the character went through a lot of changes, and I believe if I remember from that conversation, Mister Freeze was originally in the '60s shows where that name came from. But this is the this is the story that makes Mister Freeze the modern character that he is. He he has. One of the things that the animated series did was they just added pathos to all these different characters. They tried to give them a reason for how they turned out. Um, not necessarily one that you like. It's so much sympathy. Sometimes it's sympathetic, but it's it's always the fact of like, oh, there is a reason why you turned out the way you did. It's not just you're a cruel person, right? It's that... You have these character flaws that when the th- right thing hits you at the right angle, it turns you into a monster. Um, and I mean, and this is, I would say, the the tone setting for this. This is very early in the um, in the run of stuff. This is episode four of season one, originally premiered September 7th, 1992, uh, written by Paul Dini and directed by Bruce Timm. Uh, we, we get into Heart of Ice. Yes, Heart of Ice. We have been uh, very excited to do this one. And, um, you know, I mean, let's just talk about uh, very quickly here, you know, our first memories of this episode. I mean, I remember, um, I mean, I would have been watching this show during reruns. I was certainly not seeing it during its original play. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, this would have been like probably 96, 97, give or take. And, um, you know, I, I remember the show well, but this character specifically, not so much the episode, you know, being a little five, six-year-old, whatever it was, not so much the episode stood out to me, but the character design, you know, this yes. sort of, like, scary doctor man inside of this, like, at the time as a child, this underwater suit, as I kind of thought of it, you know, this <laughs> diving suit. And um, he has this scary ice gun, and he freezes Batman in ice. He's very dangerous, and they have to, hey, they have to put a guy in a bacta chamber to heal him later, you know, because of this guy. He's so bad. So, like, you know, they, they really they really do a good job of not only setting him up as an emotionally conflicted character and a character that you're obviously supposed to feel sympathy for, but they do a really good job of, you know, pitting him and Bruce Wayne and Batman mm-hmm. all against the same person in different ways for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it really is because of, you know, freezing this that Batman sort of, quote unquote, takes down the true villain. But we'll talk about that as we go here. Yeah. And, and the thing that you're also saying, his design is extremely iconic in this because what the um, it, it's it's emblematic of what the whole show was about. Yeah. And it was, again, presenting this to people was taking what had happened in the 89 Batman, some of this gothic architecture and stuff, and sort of just writing that, yes, Gotham City is perpetually in the 1940s. It's just stuck in the past. And so Mr. Freeze doesn't come out with this slick, high-tech thing. He has a 1940s, 50s era refrigeration suit and this big, like... It's very deco and very swept truck, Mm -hmm. but it's just a cudgel of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Like... um, and then you have Mr. Freeze in all these very neutral tones. He's got that helmet that had that, like, just airbrush streak on it, just so you know that it's reflective. And then these just open red circles for eyes. Not particularly emotive at all, but with 
pretty strong eyebrows right behind him, and he's just, mm-hmm. he's a very cutting figure. And the voice, right? It's not just the visual appeal, mm-hmm. but it's the voice as well. It is um, smart and reserved and threatening, and um, you know his his threats is is action oriented as this episode is and this villain is. His threats and his story come through his dialogue more than anything. You know, there's a great chase sequence early on where he's shooting ice out of the back of the truck at, a, at mm-hmm. the Batmobile. And, um, you know, there, there's some great moments where he is sort of this, you know, toe-to-toe bruiser with Batman. You know, yes. he, can, he can fight with him, but that's not what makes the character interesting or uh, powerful for us here, right? And another thing that I think really lends him, I mean, we, you mentioned just a second, the art style uh, and the design of this show and series as a whole. But specifically this episode, the way they use snow, yes. and they almost make it look like, because of the way this, you know, hand-drawn animation works, it is essentially the topmost layer when you're watching it. So yeah. it looks like you're peering through a window or a snow globe mm. into this world. Mm. And not only when we can speak about the metaphorical, you know, impacts of that, but it is a very visually beautiful thing, even in four by three, even in by 2022. You know, we, we I still really visually enjoy watching the episode. Yeah, so we start off by seeing essentially Mr. Freeze in action and the kind of crimes that he's capable of committing. We see how powerful this, you know, ray gun style freeze weapon he has and how he can freeze things solid. Um, He has a a lot of control over it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I love this little opening here too because he's watching the news Mm -hmm. and it's in black and white when the episode, you know, you get the... um, Again, it's the 40s. Yeah, you get the opening montage, and then you go to this little black and white news segment. And for a brief second, I was like, wait, did did I hit a button? Did I I do something (laughs) here? Like, did I change to channel two? Um, So I'm watching this, and it's great. And I love, I mean, there's a couple times this comes up throughout the episode. But right at the beginning here, you know, we have, this is the people company. And right as she says it, there's a police officer shooing children away from the snow, you know, from playing in the snow. Um, And it's just... They're laying on that level of uh, introspection very thickly, and I, and I like that, and I like that. And obviously the story of Batman is always about corporate greed, right, and and the little guy. And the, well, and the yeah, playing with injustice. Yeah, but, but this is just such a funny, over-the-top example. You know, I think when you're writing parody or when you're, when you're writing something that is in a way sarcastic or... Um, is meant to bring obvious sarcasm to a topic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I love when things are so heavy-handed, so over-the-top like that. You know, mm. the people company. Uh, you know, the, the people yeah, saying, cause... we're going to protect your freedoms as they take them away. Like, like just the, just the very, like, heavy-handed, straightforward, we're saying something good that is clearly propaganda in front of a visual representation of this being a lie. Yeah. But that's okay, because we're smiling and being positive as we say it, and that is just such a... Boy, in 1992, if that example was relevant, it's way more relevant today. Well, I mean, the thing about it is you have Summer Gleason's reporting on the fact it's the middle of the summer and they have all these cold-related crimes. And the perpetrator is not particularly known, but the one thing that is definitely known is that they are attacking Gothcorp, the people company. Um, And Gothcorp, it seems just to be a multinational conglomerate. We never really see exactly what they do Mm -hmm. specifically, 
but we do know they help people. They help people all day, all night. Uh, and this is where we get a fine turn of uh, Ferris Boyle, who is sort of the, the CEO of Gothcorp, who really shrugs all this off of like, you know, oh, we don't know what's going on, but it's really sad because if this person would talk to us, I'm sure we could work something yeah. out. There, there's only one possible employee who this could be, but oh, it, he's gone. It couldn't be him. Yeah, and so Batman, on the trail of Mr. Freeze, realizes that, you know, he sees the connection, so he reaches out to Ferris Boyle as a fellow billionaire. He reaches out as Bruce (laughs) Wayne. the way he does this, I just love the way he gets this. So, the pieces they've stolen, when looked at individually, are nothing. But when assembled (laughs) together, with this hypothetical missing fifth piece that now I know they will have to go after, they will create this freezing death ray. So this hypothetical piece of technology that only this demented genius could come up with, Batman clicks a few buttons on a computer, is like, he's going to build this. He'll probably paint it silver. Just a guess, though. Well, I'll give him at least one credit. By this point, he could at least make a guess that Freeze might be building a a ray gun because Freeze has already built a ray gun. No, I know. It's all fair. It's it's just all in good fun. But it is No, no, I think specifically what you're talking about of the, like, Audience, we need you to get on board with here. So here's five things, and then watch. Do, 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 do. They yeah. all come together. It's it's very much that, I don't know if it's just because I grew up in that time period, mm-hmm. but it's very much that 90s sensibility of explaining something in a movie. It's like watching Sandra Bullock in the net and being like, <laughs> that doesn't mean that. What? That, that what? I guess in the 90s, people didn't know these terms, huh? Well, I think, <laughs> I think when you have the 90s, I think the weird thing about it is like, What's weird to us is we as modern audiences, what the heck were they talking about? I don't understand that. Let me Google that. Which wasn't an option in the 90s. Yeah. So that's why we had more heavy-handed exposition and stuff is because because uh, we had to like we had to like really well, put a lantern on it for you just to understand what the thing we're trying to accomplish is. And not is. only that, content was made for a much wider range of people because it was to be expected to be seen by a much wider range of people, right? You had mm-hmm. um you know, you had the the four sitcoms that were being made for that season and you know, they had to serve a pretty wide demographic from 6 to yes, 10 p.m. Bro. and and that would have been it, you know? So it's like you have to you can't target to a niche demographic. Like a show like The Witcher could never exist at a time at that like time. that because mm-hmm. it's for too small an audience, even though that segment of the audience is quite large in the big picture and is well, big enough to support an audience, not when, you know, you've got to pay for airtime and you've got to do all these well, the other things. Well, there wasn't a way to connect to that audience mm-hmm. directly. Well, there yeah. Was, because, you know, you had to put it on broadcast television and that's gargantuan. And I mean, in some ways, I mean, Fox is what in its third or fourth year of really being a network at this time when they're bringing this show out. So it's definitely, you know, very broad, being as big as possible with within the confines of, you know, making a show that is essentially for kids, but also broad enough to get, like, college, high school, Yeah, it's obviously worth pointing out that at that time, there was still very much the mindset of, this is children's programming. Only well, weirdos would watch this if it if they're the, not children. The last time we saw Batman in animation, he was doing things like the Super Friends. Yeah. So we, we came a long way. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's just it, it, honest. You know, the people making it at the time, the marketers, right? Mm-hmm. They are making this for children. That's just who the content was made for. Whereas Which, now people understand that when you make a, oh God, a, what, what's that show? Arcane? 
the town. Oh, yeah. like <laughs> the I, League of Legends show. Things yeah. I don't know about, right? But that is for a very specific nerdy audience, I'm sure. Right. Um, and I think that's um, but inches and salt. No, but again, but showing how this show is trying to punch above its weight is. When we see Bruce interact with Ferris Bueller, we see the real Ferris Bueller. The mask kind of falls here, and he's just yeah. talking about the little people, Bruce. People that we don't need to care about. Yeah, he's really, like, it's very subtle here, but even in animation, you can see Bruce's disgust as he walks out the door. And it's great for us as the audience to see that this is what Bruce Wayne's life is like. And this is part of the thing that influences him to sort of mm-hmm. fight against corruption because of people like this that he well, knows are out there, that he knows are part of every day. Well, I think a key thing, we, we talked about it when we talked about like the, the, the quote-unquote original Batman when we made that kind of uh, podcast. But um, his dad, Thomas Wayne, is a doctor. And I think that's a crucial part of how Bruce Wayne is a better person mm-hmm. He's not, like, just a third-generation industrialist, right? He was raised by someone who was very caring and mostly walked away from the family fortune and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to be a humanitarian. So, unlike a Ferris Bueller, Bueller Ferris <laughs> Boyle here, like, Ferris Boyle, you can tell, like, you know, punches NBA from his Ivy League school, came to work here, and he has never, ever cared about, you know... He's never hurt for money. He's never hurt for anything like this. And he just assumes that everyone around him who has struggled or anything is incompetent or unworthy. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. and they're just spending his money. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something they spell out really, really well. Yeah. Because when we come back around to Mr. Freeze's origin a little bit later in the, sh- in the episode, it really helps selling why this guy is so deserving of Mr. Freeze's just rage. Yeah, by making this sort of third wheel, you know, secondary character villain here so evil, so reprehensible, that is a way to make the other villain, in this case Freeze, uh, more understanding. You more know, sympathetic. More, yeah, more sympathetic. So, you know, they do a really good job of giving you a sleaze bag to really yes. hate. Um, to make Freeze seem more fun. Well, fun might not be the right word. But you well, know no, no, I mean. no, no, no. See more human. Yeah, human is a good way to put it. Um, boy, I really, really like when we get the little flashback here. Mm-hmm. When we see, you know, Freeze, pre-Freeze, Freeze, Freeze. Victor Freeze with freeze an eye. Freeze, yeah. Um, and what's interesting about this, uh, because it's been a long time since I've seen this episode personally. Yeah. Um, is two things. One in that moment, I don't know if a child, as a child, I realized, you know, how heavily they're implying that, you know, that that he killed his wife. That, you know, it's because of him that his wife will never have a chance to get better. You know, he essentially mm-hmm. defrosted her. And, you know, once you have freezer burn, you can't refreeze. Well, the, the way they do it is, you know, like, it's Victor Freeze is a medical doctor who is working on a specialized cure for the yep. love of his life, his wife, Nora. And it's implied that he has done all kinds of slightly dubious ways, like really cutting edge, experimental, unproven, you know, methodologies. And it's all in service of saving his wife. And this is where, again, in most Batman villains, you have here's a sympathetic character, a guy who's struggling to save his wife's life. Like we can all relate to man. I if I had those powers, that's what I would be using them to is to save my loved ones. But you have the kind of dark edge of, but Victor is trying to save his wife. 
any benefits this technology or techniques have to anyone else in the world is secondary. He is just single focusedly trying to save his wife. Mm -hmm. And what that's caused him is his work has not produced anything for the company. So eventually Boyle finds this out, realizes he's been, you know, taking company property without permission. And he's not proving any profits on this stuff. And I can't just keep spending it forever. And he goes over to shut the machine down and freeze just freaks out. He's like, you can't shut it down. It's a very delicate process. If she, if her body raises a certain above certain temperature, the stunting I have on her disease will go away and she'll die. Um, probably sooner, especially if you just turn it off. And of course, he's like, I don't care. I paid for this. <laughs> and kind of bats him away. Yeah. And in the end, rips the machine apart. A hose comes loose. Cryogenic materials just spilling out into the air. Boyle's like, oh, this looks like a bad scene. I should uh, leave. Shuts the doors and just walks away. And we just see Freeze kind of screaming in pain, like slumped against the glass tube his wife's in, just like, Nora! Yeah. As he's getting consumed by all these chemicals that are pouring over his skin. And this is essentially when we learn that he has to live at a sub-zero temperature. You know, we see his mm -hmm. henchmen living and working in their big jacket, you know, Eskimo trying to gear, survive yeah. as they're shivering, walking around. Um, you know, also one thing I want to point out is, uh, Dr. Freeze was, was quite a bit huskier before he got frozen. Yeah. So he's, something, yeah. You know, he's very, he's very, he looks taller and thinner. Like he got stretched out, uh, after the fact. So I'm wondering if something about the extreme cold, you know, caused his body to burn calories at an accelerated rate or something like that. Uh, I mean, I think that would make sense when you consider the fact that like, um, in most portrayals, including Sort of this one. I say sort of because you don't see it necessarily in this. At the end when he's outside the suit in his cell, like you see a little bit, but he's in a pretty baggy clothes. But like, especially by when he shows up again in Batman Beyond, he's a stick. Like he's an extremely tall, skinny guy. Yeah. And I think to what you said, it's like he probably, his metabolism is probably all kinds of out of whack. You know, it's funny they decided to go with the complete opposite for the movie with Arnold. Well, so the it, funny thing about that is, okay, so yeah, let's, okay, let's divert there a little bit yeah. because we are talking about the origin of Mr. Freeze. And um, when they hired Arnold, they, the whole point was to retell this story basically exactly. Like, everyone thinks that this is a really good origin story for a person who's trying to save his wife, goes sideways, and all he's doing is stealing and thieving and trying to either save Nora or get revenge for what's been wronged of him. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, I always thought that Arnold's casting at the time was great, because, spoiler, you've heard this if you've been listening to the show, Mr. Freeze is probably my favorite comic book villain of all time. I adore Mr. Freeze deeply and profoundly. I think he's the most fascinating character, and he's had many, many iterations, and I kind of like all of them. <laughs> um, and the way I saw Arnold with that beautifully crafted armor he has, uh, which I don't think gets enough appreciation, is how good that costume is. I always kind of took it as like, Mr. Freeze is still kind of the skinny guy. All of that is machinery. Like, the majority of that mass is not Arnold Schwarzenegger, giant man, that I know he's a giant man. It's inside there yeah. is a much smaller person. But again, you can't really do that with the technology. Like, if I was going to do that same exact casting in that same exact system, right, I would have done it with um, kind of the technology they used in Captain America First Avenger. 
Like, where most of the time it's just Arnold in a suit. But, like, when he's just Victor, I would have de- I would have shrunk him down a little bit. Um, and I've always said... I and liked- they do do some stuff with his cheekbones, with the makeup, mm-hmm. to give him that high that high cheekbone look when he's in that, like, um, the prison scenes and stuff, I think. Yeah. Um, so they do put some effort into it, but it is an interesting choice. Well, it, it's a weird... And the, the last thing about it I always thought was, to me, something to appreciate is... I also like that for maybe, maybe twins is the other one. But for like the first time ever, Arnold's Austrian accent can make sense within the context of the actual character. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not a far thing for especially the 1940s era Mr. Freeze that we, we are building this out of to, oh, well, probably he's a German scientist. Like, that's not hard to buy, right? That, you know, th- this guy was, uh, you know... Uh, working on rocket programs or something before he started, you know, his wife got ill. <laughs> he was, uh, you know, working on coolant for the engines. And and to be honest, other than the weird detour of The Batman, like the animated show The Batman, this is the canonical Mr. Freeze. Is Mr. Freeze, wife, frozen in chemicals, can never get warm again and constantly either trying to fix his wife or, or, or trying to get revenge. Mm-hmm. This is the one that we see in pretty much every iteration except for like one I can think of off the top of my head. And for good reason, because it's really, really powerful. Even in the context of our show that we're talking about, like after watching it, like even Batman's like, oh my God. Oh yeah. Like he has a visceral reaction to like, that guy got screwed and he's, how is he not dead? <laughs> Um, And so we kind of established that everything points to Freeze is not only, you know, getting revenge on Gothcorp. He wants revenge on Boyle. Boyle's the one who caused all this. And Batman is pretty sure he knows where this is going to go down because Ferris Ferris, Ferris Boyle is about to win the Humanitarian of the Year Award because he runs Gothcorp. The People Company. There's also a great scene here where Bruce has to infiltrate this event. Uh, he, you know, into the security room. He's trying to get a file. And he has, like, a blonde wig on. Mm. Like, he infiltrates, like, as a blonde man. Well, do you notice that? Yeah, no, no, no. It, it's interesting because, well, we've seen in, uh, we will see, I should say, because this has been the fourth episode for most people. Um yeah. We see that Bruce has got some of that, like, Master of Disguise stuff. I mean, Matchstick Malone is a character that he'll embody. But it is, it's always a little comic when, like, like Bruce, you hear Kevin Conroy, like, oh, it's just me, normal guy. What's going on? I'm trying to go through the back door like a normal person. I ain't Bruce Wayne nor the Batman. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's fun. Obviously, it's fun. It's good. But it was just something that jumped out to me here. And this is where he has another interaction with Freeze. But, uh, you know, the truth, the truth comes out at the event. Yeah. And it's great because, you know, Batman's part of this. He's like basically like, yeah, no, Mr. Freeze got screwed. Let him talk. Let him tell his story. It's effed up. (laughs) (laughs) And and Boyle's like, no, no, don't tell them. I can't win the humanitarian award if they know that I murdered people. (laughs) Batman is nothing if not fair. Well, again, Batman is an agent of justice. And justice is not always nice. <laughs> um, you know, that's, I mean, that's at the core of the character, right? Like, I, I'm Batman. I don't use guns and I don't kill people. 
Oh, that's really noble. I maim them and give them lifelong injuries that they'll never recover from. <laughs> you don't see a moral compunction there? Justice. <laughs> Crippling debt will make them learn. I was gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is a certain amount of like, you know what the true punishment is? The hospital bills I just gave you. <laughs> Let's see the Falcons cover that. <laughs> and don't go to the free clinic. I'm kind of monopolizing her time. <laughs> no, he only sees Alfred. No, well, I, I mean, Leslie Tom Tompkins is definitely running a free clinic, and Batman definitely uses the services when I know he can afford health care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if anyone can, it's Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. So, um, a, a true classic episode. Yeah, no oh, doubt about it. We should say okay. So the one last thing about it we didn't mention is okay. Oh. So Batman has a cold through this. Oh, and Alfred gives him chicken noodle soup to fight the cold. <laughs> Forgot about this. Which is good because it's it's the crucial last thing because uh, Mister Freeze represents that you know he's got his death ray set up and Mister Freeze is smart. He takes Batman's utility belt. He has been doing this for like what a week and he already knows take the dang utility belt because that's how Batman gets out of stuff. But Batman gets out of there and he pulls from, gets from, you know, a ch gets this chicken noodle soup and cracks the dome of Freeze and throws this hot soup all over his face and freezes in agony. One of the things I love about this so much is it answers the question is how durable was that helmet he was wearing? You know, is it bulletproof? Is it like plexiglass where if he falls on a sharp rock on the playground, it'll actually save him because he'll well, just bounce right off of it? I think the funny thing is, I think at least in this, it's implied that it's glass. Yeah. Like it's just glass. Yeah, because that's what I've, I'm... if you think of the 40s or the 50s, it's not until like plastics of the late 40s and 50s that we start getting to having an alternative transparent material that isn't glass or yeah. some type of glass. I just Boy. hope it's laminated so that he doesn't have, like, specks of glass all through his face. That's what I'm saying. Just, like, imagine you get in a car accident and you hit your head off that. It goes through that. And then you still hit your head off the window on the side of the car, too. That's Ugh. a double whammy. It's rough. Yeah. If it's not going to be protective. Put some padding in there, at least, Freeze. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and again. Insulation, I, too, and, it would be. And in different versions, he's had more stuff built around yeah. that. But, I mean, the sort of, like, for lack of a better term... The, the B-movie, like, space helmet is just something that is very intrinsic to his character. Oh, for sure. And it's, I mean, it's it's iconic. We love looking at it. Um, And so after all of this, we find out that, you know, Batman being who he is, you know, he brings, you know, he, he has the sympathy for, for Freeze. But, you know, Freeze has to be sent to Ark. Actually, I don't know if he goes to Arkham. It actually. Did they show Arkham specifically? They just show the jail cell. Don't yeah, they? I don't think they show the Arkham sign. Because in or theory, anything. he's not criminally insane. He should be over at Blackgate. Yeah. But he's got the little <laughs> Arkham's sort of a catch-all for everybody over there. That's where all the funding goes. It just shows how corrupt the justice system is. Of like, I don't know, he's insane. Send him to the <laughs> hospital for his own good, I guess. But Freeze is in a special cell that is allowed to keep that cold, so he's just in plain clothes, and he's holding the the snow globe that's got mm -hmm. the dancer that obviously represents Nora, um, and just sort of thinking about like what he's done and how there's just this just cold deadness inside of him. And it's really punctuated, as most of these episodes are, by Shirley Walker's beautiful themes that she wrote for every single one of this with four orchestra. Oh, remember when we used to do that for TV shows? <laughs> um, 
playing that just that bittersweet song. Mm-hmm. It's like Batman's sort of looking in on him because like Batman can relate to this guy. He knows what it is to be gutted by the loss of family and having the inability to feel emotions exactly the same way everybody else does. It's it's touching. And it leaves again on that path pathos of Victor Freeze is a tragic character. He you know, he has been wronged and there's no way to make him right. Um and again, as we said, I mean, I was going to wrap up with that, but like the legacy of this episode, it completely restructured the character of Mr. Freeze, brought him up a lot in the roster tier list of how important he is to the stories. Um, and I really adore the character, but he's never really peaked past this storyline and the many times we've told this storyline, um, mostly because, I mean, too often Nora's used like a freaking uh, chess piece of like, like, well, Mr. Like, say the the Arkham video games when Mr. Freeze is involved, it's just used of like, like, well, why are you doing all this stuff, Mr. Freeze? They have Nora. Of course they do, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the only lever you really have. Because Mr. Freeze is not really a criminal. He's not a career criminal. He's not. He's always doing these crimes with purpose. He's yeah. never like trying to get rich. He's never trying to take over the city. He's always trying to heal Nora or get his own personal revenge. Yeah, he's a scientist. Yeah, and and that is one of the other clever things about Mr. Freeze is he's really really smart. Um which is is a nice you always want brains to go with the brawn in any good villain. Yeah, and and again, just a delightful episode, uh one of my absolute favorites and I think uh Again, it, 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 maybe this is a little too bold, but if you're going to show a new person who's never seen Batman the Animated Series and you want them to know why you think it's such a great show, just show them this one. If they don't get into this one, they're just not going to get into that show. <laughs> like, it's just not going to be on their radar. I think this is the single best episode of the entire run of yeah. Batman, of BTAS. I agree, and I'm so glad we finally got around to talking about it. Mac, you Me ready too. to move on to our next topic? Yeah, I, I think we are. All and right. In the future, by the way, I'm, we're going to do Mask of the Phantasm someday. I want to go through that too. We certainly will. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Stick around for the next segment of Bye. We are going to talk about the left half of Two Face right after this. <laughs> All right, another episode of Star Wars All In. Uh, That might be our longest episode yet. (laughs) I am beat. I feel like I just did a couple tracks around Canto Bite with the Fathiers. Well, and, and, you know, you're saying Canto Bite, but, like, what we talked about when we talked about what if Luke left Tatooine and went to the Academy first, like... It's amazing how we got to Kanto Bite with that and how it's a completely different story when you see it through that lens. Yeah, it. my perspective will never be the same. No, I don't think it can be because it's, it's this is why people criticize The Door Between Worlds is because it could change literally everything. 
And in some ways we proved it could be a completely different franchise. It could be in different genres if things went differently than they did. Mm. Uh, and it kind of makes you kind of makes you happy for the canon we have. It kind of makes you happy that there are some rules and this thing is fairly zipped down and could we're not you, changing time all the time. I mean, could you imagine if Star Wars was like DC where every year there's like, here's our new 52. Well, We've got a new canon for you to worry about. Where they just go reboot everything like whenever willy-nilly they want or 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 if they just try to like juggle timelines like the terminator franchise for instance has like like it's sarah connor but now it's another sarah connor and then the tv show sarah connor's like yeah what's the mother of dragons doing here i don't get this it's all a mess now i mean i'm glad we have it because then you don't end up with a very static thing like you know it's not like oh here's a new world and new characters but uh i don't know uh like pokemon like ash ketchum never ages he's 10 forever he and his pikachu are going all around the world never aging like i'm glad that we have a more dynamic story than that (sighs) being 10 forever great for the pedophiles in that universe bad for everybody else gross i know it's a weird world pokemon full of dog fighting i know it's an uh, odd world and and animals that can shrink into balls Uh uh again what's stopping a human from being stuck in one of those mr mom's halfway there and he's got like dodgeball fingers (laughs) All right, I think that's enough for us today. We, we, we're getting loopy. We're getting just straight up loopy. I wonder why. I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, until we meet again, my name is Mac. And my name is Ross. And until next April Fool's Day, may the force be with This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2022.